following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. How are we doing through 1 Peter? Is everybody energized, enthusiastic, excited about hearing what Peter has to say to us next? I don't know about you, but Peter is not one of those books that at various different times I would call to be an encouraging book, per se. Um, It's a very exhorting book. Peter has a high expectation for how we as Christians should live, and he makes it very, very clear, and he delivers that message very directly. And uh, sometimes that can be a lot to take on. I've heard uh, several different feedbacks as, as we've gone through Peter and people just saying they, they feel like they just, they're getting beat up week after week after week. And that's true. That's what Peter is doing. That's actually probably his intention is to, to make sure that we know as Christians uh, that there is a higher uh, example for us to strive for. And that is the example of Jesus Christ. So as Peter puts these things forward, I want to remind you once again that, that we're dealing with a man that knows what it means to fail. We're dealing with a man that has lived in the depths of failure. And not only has he lived in the depths of failure, it's been recorded. And then over and over throughout history, we get to remember how Peter messed up. Just keep in mind what kind of an impact that would have on your life if you were in that place. Now, granted, Peter probably was long gone before a lot of these things were put into the writings that we're reading today, and so he didn't experience this letter that went out that said, hey, Peter, Peter messed up. But um, certainly, he had a very public failure. And so Peter comes to us with the knowledge of failure, the experience of failure. Not with this high and mighty attitude that I've got it figured out, but please learn from my mistakes. Do not do what I have done. The theme as we continue on through 1 Peter really is, how now shall we live? How are we as the church meant to be the church? He's writing to a a group of foreigners uh, that that are um, being persecuted, uh, maybe not quite politically persecuted yet at this point in time, but certainly socially persecuted. Uh, A lot of them have probably lost their their families and a lot of their possessions, their businesses, by making a choice uh, to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, They are on the outside. And Peter is talking to these people uh, as, as though he's best friends with them, right? This is the type of conversation you have with somebody that you've known for years. You don't write to somebody that you've never met. Ooh, the first crack. You don't write to somebody that you've never met, uh, that you're not terribly good friends with, that's suffering great anxiety and poverty and being persecuted and tell them all the things that they're doing wrong, right? That's generally not how we would uh, address those around us. But Peter does exactly this. Peter sets, once again, a standard. And I've taken this standard to heart as I preach this, uh, and that I am trying very hard to internalize this as I go. So once again, please join me as I struggle through this. Please don't take this as a sermon from me preaching at you. But really, my thoughts as I've gone through and I've, I've wrestled with these topics, I, I invite you to join me in that. And I invite you to join me in, in his criticism, in, in his exhortation, in his encouragement, ultimately. So last week in First Peter... Uh, we, we covered the, the, these ideas that we are to be a blessing, 
that that is our calling, that we as the church, not just as CCF, but as the church corporate and the church in Chiang Mai and the church in, in the world, in a lot of ways, we've failed this. We have failed to be a blessing. We've failed to be of one mind. We've failed to be sympathetic. We've failed to have the, the mindset of a family. We've failed to be tender-hearted. Remember this idea of deep-seated tender-heartedness that goes deep down within you. It's not just the facade you put on Sunday morning, but something that, that goes very, down into your soul. We've failed as a church to be humble, to put others before us. And Peter is exhorting us to change. So as we go into verse 13 through 22 today, I'm going to invite you to, to um, I'm going to read this, if you'll just read along with me, in the context of what we studied last week. It says, Now who will, want to be, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? And even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good than it is than it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in the terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. One of the challenge of this, challenges of this particular passage is it's an extremely controversial passage. Not because of the actual theme of the passage, but because of the specifics in the passage. This idea of Jesus going and preaching to those in prison. This idea of baptism as a saving grace, as it is interpreted by some people. This creates a lot of controversy. And the interesting thing, I, I, I have to point out the irony in this, in that, that Peter is obviously calling us to, to speak with each other in humility and in kindness and respect while delivering an extremely controversial passage. We all know from being in the church for any length of time that if there's one thing we are not generally courteous about talking about, it's the controversial topics. Peter has set a standard for us. Peter also makes it very, very clear that doing good is an evangelistic tool. That's his first message. Be good. Simple. Be good. What does that mean, to be good? Right? We, we, we've, we've all heard various different versions of this. Our, our families, our parents have probably told us at one point in time, be good. Okay, be good. What does this mean? Well, I can tell you what's interesting about this is it doesn't necessarily say do good. 
We go once again with Peter into this idea, this state of mind, not, not a set of moralistic teachings, but, but a set of, of teachings about who we are to be, that we are to be good. And where do I get this from? It says, now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? It says, who will want to harm you if you do good? It does not say that. The word there, eager, is a mindset. Who will want to harm you if you are eager to to do good. This idea that you are in a place of being where you are in your spirit eager to do good. It is a place of who you are. Remember the the bees from last week are not things to do. They are things to be. We are to be of one mind. Be sympathetic, be family, be tender-hearted, be humble. And now we are to be eager to do good. The first problem that Peter addresses here in this idea of good is who, who would want to harm you if you're just a good person? Now, obviously, Peter is not ignorant to the persecution happening in his day, uh, nor do I think he would be ignorant to the persecution and difficulties of our current day. But Peter does make it clear that there is something to be gained by doing good. If we are good, society is more likely to accept us in some terms. That is not a blanket statement. And obviously, once again, Peter addresses in his next statement how that can go wrong and how society often does not accept us just as do-gooders. But he does lay it down as a rule that we should be good and that that is how we are to interact with society. Who would want to harm you if you are to be good? I think this is a very valuable lesson in scripture, because the, this idea that being good, and we put this in, the, let's put it in the context here of the law, right? To be legal is one of those kind of grayish things that actually is kind of inconvenient at times. And, and in fact, it would go along with Peter's next statement that oftentimes following the law here does not result in favor. But Peter's first phrase here is, Follow rules. Be good. Be a good person. Be good in your heart because society is less likely to persecute you that way. That, that's, that's his first statement. Now, this is a very short-lived little happy place where we can live for a second and we can think in this idea that if we're just good, ministry will be easy. Our families will be easy. If we're just good, that sibling we never got along with, they'll forgive us. If we're just good, immigration will just notice what we're doing and make our lives easier. If we're just good, people will take favor in us. We can live there for a second. Enjoy that. It's there. It does happen every once in a while. But then it says, so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. There it ends. You lived in that happy place. That's great. Now, what happens when it goes south? Well, Peter continue uses the, uses, continues to use this in the idea of an evangelistic tool. If you are good, you will influence people. If you are not good, or if you are good and people hate you for it, you will still influence people. It says that we should be good no matter the consequence. Now, for me, this is a hard message because I cannot tell you how many times in my professional life I've wanted to not be good in order to make my life a little bit easier 
living here within this legal context. But unfortunately, that is substandard. And it is my belief and my intention for my own life and this organization and this church and those that we minister to that we set a high standard that we are to be legal and that not just within a legal context, but we are to love our families at that standard. That we are to love each other. That we are to go back to those, one thi- those things again, of one mind, sympathetic, humble, family, tender-hearted. That we are to be those things. That that is the standard that Peter has set for us. But Peter knows that there's going to be times where that in and of itself brings consequence upon us. Where sometimes loving this country does not reward us with favor. Sometimes loving our spouse does not reward us with favor. Sometimes loving our children does not reward us with favor. Be prepared. Be prepared. So once you try to be good and that fails and society starts to persecute you anyway, be prepared for that. What does that mean? It says, And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Do this in a gentle and respectful way. Be prepared. This idea that we are to love Jesus as or worship Christ as the Lord of our life. This idea that Peter brings in that once again this this covenant idea. That we have this promise between us and Jesus Christ, right? We have this 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 covenant between him and and us. And that's one of those things that we remember through the, through the sacrament of communion. It's this idea that there is not it's not just a uh, a distant uh non-blood relative relationship here, but that that there is a contract a covenant with us. And that by not being able to share our hope or by maybe misunderstanding that hope, we're somehow breaking that covenant. We are to be prepared to share with us about our hope. Because when you do good, people are still going to persecute you. People are still going to hurt you. They're still going to hate you. And we are to be prepared for that eventuality by making sure that we can tell them about our hope in Jesus Christ. This hope in Jesus Christ has gotten us all through a lot, right? Can we all agree that at this point in time, if you profess Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you have gone through some sort of an experience of transformation where he has come into your life and he has transformed you. Many of you are here, your families are here because you have taken steps in that transformation uh, that led you to this country and these various different ministries. Can we all agree with that? Now, can we communicate that? When we are being persecuted, can we communicate our hope in that? When people uh, do not love on us, Are we sharing Christ with them? We need to be willing to speak up for God, confess our allegiance to Him, and witness fearlessly to His saving grace. Live in a state of preparedness. So be good in your heart, in your soul, that deep idea. And then be prepared. Well, how do we do that? How do we prepare to be able to speak about our hope? And, and, and it's not just to be able to speak about our hope 
Peter raises that again. One more, right? He says, prepare to speak about your hope and be able to do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Now, I took a step back and I thought, wow, if there's two things that really does not define the corporate church in the world right now, it's gentleness and respect. And I think we're part of that. Once again, not because I, I think we always are, are looking to, to be mean to people, but I think we fear. And that fear takes over the gentleness and the respect. This idea that gentleness is, is, a, is a mildness in, in that particular context. It's, it's this humility idea brought up again. That you're willing to put somebody else before you. That when you are sharing your hope in Jesus Christ, you're not bludgeoning them with it. You're being humble before them. And this idea of, of respect, or actually better translator, tra- translated that Phobos idea of fear. Now, I mistranslated this when I first thought, and I thought, why, why would we have the fear of, of people? But that's, that's not what we're asked here. We're, we're supposed to be communicating our hope in Jesus Christ in our fear of God. That healthy understanding of who God is in our life. That we are to respect God. We are to do it out of respect for God. And when we play God, we disrespect God. So when we shove the gospel down somebody's throat, or we put ridiculous strings or, or, or uh, requirements on that hope, we take away God's godness and we disrespect him. Peter is saying that you are to be prepared to share the hope of Jesus Christ in your life with humility and fear of God. And that is a wonderful standard. Not fear of man, fear of God. How many times have we not shared our faith in a context because we feared man? Because we feared what they would think of us, what they would say about us. And Peter is telling us here, you're fearing the wrong person. That we are to be fearful of God. And it says also to keep our conscience clear. To keep our conscience clear. Can you honestly wake up on a daily basis? I know I can't do this. And just say, ah, fresh day, my conscience is clear. And at the end of today, my conscience will still be clear. Unfortunately, we, we can't a lot of times. And that's because we're constantly working through this process of forgiveness with Jesus Christ as we put things before him and he works those things out in our lives. And that's part of the Christian experience. And there are some of those good days, right, where you can actually wake up and say, man, yesterday was a good day. We really worked some stuff out. I'm ready, God, for what you've got for me today. What do you want me to work on today? But Peter, once again, gives us a standard that we are to keep our conscience clear. What does it mean to keep our conscience clear? I think it takes two things. One, we have to abstain from sin in the first place. That's one of the things we have to work to do. And it's one of the things we have to allow Christ into us, and we have to abide in him to allow him to work through us. Because we're going to quickly run out of steam if we're constantly trying to uh, abstain from sin on our own power. It's just going to wear us down over and over and over again. But then, when we do sin, and when we do sin, we need to repent of that sin. We need to seek forgiveness for that sin. Peter is saying, keep your conscience clear. Don't go and try and deliver this great hope that you have in Jesus Christ when you are currently holding on to something that takes away God's godness in your life. 
be able to communicate the hope of Jesus Christ because you have a clear conscience, because you've experienced His grace and love, because then you have something to communicate. If we do not have the grace of God to communicate about how He's transformed our lives, all we have to communicate is a moral standard. And that is not saving. There's nothing gracious about that. A moral standard with no help from our Creator and without understanding the hope that He has in us is a miserable life to live. Because it's a life of failure. We must keep our conscience clear. And then next, here's where I want to spend the rest of today. Because I think that this is the part that we honestly forget. I think we can get on board with the be good and the be prepared. Uh, We can get into small groups. We can be in community. We can be in accountability with our spouse and those around us that we can prepare. We can can keep each other accountable to making sure that we're coming before God and confessing our sin and seeing that forgiveness. Those are things that the church, I think, can do. I think we can do those things well together in community. But here's the problem, is if we forget the third part of Peter's message here, we're going to fail. And this is the complicated part. And it seems so disconnected, but it's not. 1 Peter 3.19, So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God patiently waited while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you not by removal of dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. What does that have to do with anything in this passage? It has a lot to do with everything. Because what Peter is doing here is he's showing us that we believe in a just God. That we believe that there is a God out there that will someday make the world right. Peter is saying, be good, be prepared, but at the end of the day, guess what? It doesn't matter how miserable people are to you, God is just. And Peter believes in ultimate justice the ultimate writing of the world, the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. We must remember, as we endure, that someday Jesus will return and he will make this all right again. That he is a just God. Many of us have been in places in our lives and in our ministry where we've worked, we've labored, we've, we've put so much blood, sweat, and tears into seeing some moral wrong righted, some, some, uh, injustice justified, or just, Injustice made right again. We, we've, we've worked to see children put in homes that when they needed homes, we've, we've worked to see churches planted. We've seen communities transformed. And then we've all seen the flip side of that coin when we work and we work and we work and we work. And then at the end, there's nothing to show for it. Or then at the end, the pedophile gets out of prison. Or then at the end, that children's home closes. Or then at the end, that children's home finds out they're being abused in there. And then there's these terrible injustices in the world that we cannot control. And we spend a lot of time worrying about these injustices. And I think that that is a sin. 
I think that worrying about the injustices of the world once again takes away from God what is God's, and that is His justice. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't work. That's not to say that we shouldn't pour our blood, sweat, and tears into the ministries, into our families, into the things that we do. But what that does mean is that when it doesn't go our way, when maybe it takes a lot longer, when maybe we get frustrated because of language, when maybe people that we've invested in for a long time just jump off the deep end anyway, when those things happen, do you remember that we believe in ultimate justice? in our Savior, in Christ Jesus, who will return to this place and He will make the world right again. That is a promise that we have. How often do we stretch ourselves beyond our means or outside uh, of where God has called us to because we're trying to reach that one more person that we just can't quite help and, and we sacrifice ministry around us to help that one person because we've forgotten that God has not forgotten about that one person even if I'm not part of the equation. I think that this is the type of lifestyle that Peter is talking about here. Peter is saying, be good. Be prepared, be, be prepared, and then stop worrying. Because we believe in a just God. And ultimately, we will be vindicated. God's people will be vindicated. The injustices that occur in this world to God's people will be vindicated. Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe in the way that you live your daily life? Do you believe that God will ultimately return to this earth through Jesus Christ and that he will vindicate the things in this world? I know that there are many days that I do not believe that, honestly, because I see how I don't live my life that way. I worry about ministry. There are so many things to worry about. In our particular brand of ministry, we do a lot of social outreach. That's a big part of what we do, which means we work with kids a lot. At various different times, we have between 80 and 100 kids in our various different programs, several children's homes, uh, tons of liability. Anything could go wrong. One kid getting hurt, one volunteer coming in, abusing a child. One thing and ministry done. I have no doubt that at any given time, if that happens, the government will walk into my door and they will shut down the entire organization. One thing. Because I've seen it happen and I know it will happen. So how do I get up every day and not just be crushed under this weight of liability? Because I believe, I'm telling myself I believe, I'm speaking that I believe, I'm speaking over you that I believe, I'm speaking to you that we should believe that Jesus Christ is ultimately vindicating. And that I'm protected in that, and you're protected in that, and Christ's people are protected and will ultimately be vindicated in the wrongs of this world. Peter is not naive about the suffering of these people. What he's saying is, at the end of the day, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Those who suffer for doing good, will be blessed by God. 
There's a theology out there, which I, I, won't, I won't say I disagree with, but I'm not going to say that I have a significant opinion on at this point in time, that says that the more blessings you do here on earth, the crowns that you'll get in heaven, right? The, pri- the, the blessings, the prizes, the things, the little goodies, you know, the Xbox that Jesus will have for you someday when you go visit him, right? Because you've done good things here. I don't think that that's what it's talking about here. I think what God's saying is, is that those that suffer for doing good are my children, and they have an inheritance. And they will be blessed in that inheritance. And I think that that's the case because Peter uses that language over and over again here. That these blessings are not things that we earn ourselves, but they are our inheritance. They are something that are, is freely given to us. There is nothing more to achieve. There is nothing better than our inheritance. To assume we're going to get like inheritance plus one is... Something less than perfection, right? To assume that there's heaven plus one assumes that heaven in and of itself is not already perfect. And that's why I believe here what Peter is doing is he's saying, once again, as a manifestation of the fruit, as a manifestation of the transformation in your life, people that do good and are persecuted for it will be blessed. Why? Not because you're earning blessings, not because it's in your power, not because it's this moral standard, but because you are clearly a child of God. And you will be blessed in that. Once again, it's easy to lose the message in here within the controversy. There are three different views when we look at this passage that are kind of widely accepted or widely debated about what they're talking about with with Jesus. What what is he talking about this? All of a sudden we flash back to Moses again. Um, He's teaching people in prison. Um, what, What does this mean? So there's three different views. One of them, there's the descent into hell view. Okay? That essentially when Jesus uh, was resurrected, he descended into hell, um, the prison, and he, he offered salvation to the fallen angels that were down there from Genesis, and he died prior to, to that those people died prior to the flood, right? So that, that's one of the views. So if we're going to spend lots of time on that, there, there's, there's one view. Um, then there's the pre-existent Christ view, okay? That, that Christ, um, in the person of Noah, which is kind of an interesting view, right? Uh, in the person of Noah, offered salvation to the contemporaries of Noah uh, who needed to hear the word of God. These people were trapped in the prison of ignorance. Okay, so that's, that's idea number two. That's what Jesus was doing. Idea number three, the, triumph, the triumphal proclamation over the spirit worldview. I love that name. The triumphant proclamation over the spirit worldview. That's all one view. It's the name of the view. It says that Jesus, after his resurrection, proclaimed or preached victory over fallen angels in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, while they suffered in the prison of hell. Now, I personally would subscribe probably to option number three, because that's most consistent with my theology. Uh, But, once again, we could debate all day on this. But I don't want to miss the point here. You know what what happens in all three of those views? You know what the point is? What the point is? The point is that Jesus was triumphant. That's the point. It doesn't matter the view if you lose the point. The point is, Jesus vindicated for the righteous suffering of those that followed him. Jesus, in his sovereignty, 
as part of the triune God, reigns supreme over this issue of sin. The Jesus, the just God that we believe in, is, in fact, ultimately just. That's the point. That's the point in those three views. So I'm not going to spend any time debating those three views. I just want you to know that's the point. That's what it comes down to. And then this other controversial thing about baptism. Okay? I'm sure we all come from different backgrounds in baptism, right? I'm just going to knock them all out of the park today. Baptism. Does baptism save you? Well, there is that view. Some people have that view that baptism is, is, is one of those things that you go through that actually uh, offers to you the salvation that you take it and, and uh, it's... It's, it, it essentially gives you salvation in, in that act. Then there's the other view, which I think Peter subscribes to because it's consistent with his language and his theology all the way through Peter, which essentially just means that your baptism is a manifestation, once again, of what God has done in you. And I believe that because, once again, it's consistent. Over and over again, Peter, Peter keeps challenging people by bringing up these ideas that somehow we can earn salvation, but I don't think that's what he's ever saying. I think Peter is consistent in saying that those who do good, those that honor God, those that are Christ-like are saved. Not because they are Christ-like, but because they are saved. Baptism is something that you do as as a public expression of your salvation. That's my particular view on this. I'd love to take you out to coffee if you don't agree with me on that. But I do believe that that is what Peter is saying here. Is that baptism is effective... Because of Jesus Christ. Because it's part of telling the story of who Jesus Christ is in your life. It was neat when we were back in the States uh, this last month. We got a chance to, to go to a baptism at our sending church there. And they baptized seven or eight people. It was a great celebration. And every single one of them, you know, they were asked, you know, are, are you prepared to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior in your life? That he is over you? Uh, are you? Are you prepared to show that through the act of baptism? And then we baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there was this idea of renewing. They did not become baptized in that moment. They showed, baptized in their faith, I should say, they, 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 did, they made a presentation of their faith to the congregation. And this is important. It is important. I will say baptism is important because it's an opportunity for you to intentionally uh, disclose your salvation, your, trans- your, your transformation to the body of Christ, thus bringing you into the accountability of the body of Christ. There's certain accountabilities that the body of Christ is somewhat limited to until you actually make an expression of faith. Not to say that you have to physically be baptized, but until you're a Christian, keeping you accountable to a moral standard that you in and of yourself have not been transformed to actually understand exists is a bit ludicrous. But when you take that dip, you're making a public record that I am born again. And that body of Christ should come around you at that point in time and say, yep, you are certainly one of us. They should do that before you're baptized as well, if that's when you became a Christian. But that's, that's when they join around you and they say, okay, we're going to keep you accountable in this now. You're now part of the body of Christ. So Peter, once again, laying out this thing that we are to be good, that we are to be prepared, because ultimately Christ will vindicate those that suffer for doing good. And that our baptism is, is a presentation of that new birth. And that ultimately Jesus Christ is sovereign over the sin in this world. That's why we do it. 
Jesus has set the standard of love and goodness, of that humility, of that, that who we're supposed to be. If you find yourself worrying that you're not meeting that standard, if you find yourself in a place of worry and you expect that more worry and more effort is going to do the trick, I would tell you that it's not. In a place of worry, you already have forgotten who God is. In a place of anxiety, you've already forgotten who God is. I would say that we should do these things because we remember who God is. How differently we might live our lives if we woke up every single day and we knew in our very soul, and our very heart, the true transformation that has happened there. That because of God's sovereignty, we can rise above the sins of this world. If we remember, I think we forget that Christ and what he did on the cross is a real live thing that made an impact in our lives. And I think that that's, that's sometimes can even be a symptom of just being a Christian for a really long time. Sometimes we forget Sometimes it can be a symptom of being overworked in ministry. Sometimes it can be a, a symptom of, of simply just the stresses of life, that forgetting. So I want to affirm today, in your life and in my life once again, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is real. And what he did is real. And that he's sovereign, and that's real. And that we are called to be the people of God, not out of our own efforts, but out of a manifestation of what he has done in our lives and who we are as a person. Christ is real. And his saving grace is real. And as I go in and I evaluate my own life and myself, I find myself selfish, apathetic, hate-filled, lazy, even depressed at times because I forget that I worship a real God. A just God. I suffer from unbelief throughout my day as I worry and stress over things that I cannot control. I forget that Christ is real. That I am called to, be zeal- called to zealously live a life of blessing to others. Because that is how this God that I serve can be known in this world. I forget my calling. Peter knows the pain firsthand of forgetting his calling. Peter's sin of unbelief was once again written down for all of us to remember for ages so that we would be warned. Peter, knowing the real live consequences, Jesus staring into his very eyes and, and compelling him, convicting him of the sin in his life. He's written us this note to remind us that we have a big God, a just God, a great God. That ultimately Christ is real, that he lives in us. How is it possible in the Christian walk that we can remember that now, that I'm telling you that now, that hopefully your heart is saying, yes, I agree with that, I know that. And then later this afternoon, laziness or pride or hate will take over our lives. How is it possible to know such transformation now and within hours forget? How, how is that possible? But it is. We've all been there. Right? And oftentimes just remembering that Jesus Christ is real is what we need. 
Satan works in the little tiny things. In our ministries, he erodes away at us slowly, piece by piece, little thing by little thing, just nick by nick. He squeezes himself in there, even in ministry, to help us forget why we're doing ministry. Satan works in that. Generally, it's not one big thing. Some people have had that experience, but generally it's these little things. So my question to you as a congregation is, what are we doing as a church? What is our vision? What is our purpose as a church to avoid becoming a body of Christ that is stuck in that, that's allowing Satan to come in and nick away at the little pieces of us? Who are we as a church that would stand against that? Are you in community? Here at CCF, is this a community? Would you say that you are coming to church in the morning or that you are participating in the body of Christ in the morning? What about during the week? Do you just attend church on Sunday or do you participate in the body of Christ? This is accountability. I can promise you, you will erode away over time if you are not part of the body of Christ. If CCF is not the place for you in that, then I can give you a lot of great references of other places. Probably not supposed to do that, but I can. There's great churches in this community. Thai churches, foreign churches. The body of Christ must stand together to stand against these things. That's what Peter's talking about. The calling of this church is to love God, love people, build his kingdom. Love God, love people, build his kingdom. Boiled down, we can't do any of that if we forget who Christ is. If we forget his sovereignty. We are a church to make sure that we don't forget. I want to encourage you to sign up. Get one of those registration forms and sign up. Sign up to get plugged into CCF. Come to our future community nights. Get plugged into a home group. If you don't have a home group, we're going to be starting two new home groups in this coming season. We'd love for you to be part of one of them. Be part of the community. We're also called to corporate worship. Come to church on Sunday. It's a lot of work, I know. We have small children. We have to get up early. We have to get breakfast. You have to get here. We're even feeding you now. Show up, have a scone and coffee. Come to church on Sunday morning. Not because it somehow saves you, because it keeps us all accountable to being who Christ wants us to be. Because we allow First Peter to bludgeon us over and over and over again with the things that we're doing wrong. That's why we come to church on Sunday morning. Not because this is the church on Sunday morning, but because it's a component of the church on Sunday morning. Come to church. Challenge yourself. And never compromise these attitudes that Peter has invested in us. Never compromise them. Don't compromise them out of fear. Don't compromise them because the government's bearing down on you, because you don't want to wait in line, maybe because your kids are difficult, because your spouse is just incredulous someday. Don't compromise. Don't compromise on your love because your spouse says something mean to you or a friend at school says something mean to you. Don't compromise because somebody's bullying you. Don't ever compromise. Because we worship a God that does not compromise. And that's the standard. So once again, as we come back and we look at this passage, just a quick go-through again, we are called to a standard, to be humble, to be tender-hearted, 
We are called to be family. We are called to be prepared. We are called to be good. And as a church, we can do that in the power of Jesus Christ. Apart from the church, apart from the body that God created, that gets a lot more difficult. As part of the church, we can do that by remembering that Jesus Christ is sovereign in our lives. By reminding each other, tell somebody today, do you remember? Tell your spouse that next time they yell at you. Hey, did you remember? That'll tell you, win you lots of brownie points, I promise. <laughs> or if you're a kid, tell your parents that. When they get upset at you, say, hey, mom, dad, don't forget, Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's in charge of this. Might not be the best thing at that moment, but maybe wait on it and tell them later. Remind each other. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we come before you today that we would be just gracious to understand what you are doing to transform us. Lord, I pray that you would spend, um, that we would spend the time to truly get to know you in the context of who we are as a community. That we would love each other well that we would enjoy the company of this church, Lord, that we would be at the standard that Peter has set. Lord, because we remember that you are the sovereign, omniscient God. I pray that we would not forget that, that Satan would not sneak into our lives in those cracks where we forget, those times where we allow ourselves to be God of ourselves. But Lord, I pray that, that you would bar Satan from those times, that we would be spared and that we would be able to rebound from those things and remember that once again Christ is Lord and that he is real. So Lord, I commit this congregation, this body to you, not to our own doing, but to what you will do. I pray that you will motivate, that you will convict, that you will forgive, Lord, that you will love this community and that we will love you as a manifestation of what you've done in us. I pray that we don't forget. So Lord, I commit these things to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.